As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, what was the biggest thing that happened in markets in recent months over the summer? (laughs) It's like a test. I think it's like a test of, you know, what people are looking at at the moment, what they find interesting. I mean, I don't the Fed tightening, obviously. Yes, this is the correct answer. Okay, (laughs) I'll stop there. I got it right. So I'm just going to stop there and you can go on. Okay. So the Fed started quantitative tightening. We're recording this in late June. And weirdly, it kind of went by without that much fanfare. Like there were a few news articles about the Fed firing the starting gun on quantitative tightening and the unwind of its very, very large balance sheet. But there was so much going on at the same time. You know, there was that surprise 75 basis point interest rate hike and then lots of talk about inflation and things like that, that it feels like it didn't get as much attention as it probably should have. Most of the attention is paid to the rate, obviously. You know, QE when it was first unveiled or when Ben Bernanke did QE2, which was the real QE during the great financial crisis, it got so much attention. But there still seems to be a lot of ambiguity about, A, how it works, what it does, Mm -hmm. what it accomplishes. And then in terms of like the degree to which unwinding the balance sheet is or is not an additional form of policy tightening is something that I just feel like is at best like still deeply misunderstood. It is kind of crazy that even after years and years of quantitative easing, there's still a discussion about what the impact is and how it actually works. I mean, I remember people still arguing about whether or not it pushes up asset prices and things like that. And there are people out there right now who are arguing that the reason markets have fallen might not actually have to do that much with inflation concerns and worries over a looming recession, but could just be because liquidity is starting to exit the system. No, no, I mean, it's totally it's totally valid. You know, it's, it's worth noting that we have had, you know, 2014 through 2018 markets boomed, even though there was no longer a further expansion of the balance sheet. You know, we started to rally in early 2019 again, even as the balance sheet uh, shrank for a while going into the some some of the tensions. But it really is wild, as you say, like how little we know and how little even I mean, I think even the Fed knows about like quanti- uh measuring 
the effects of changes mm. to the size of the balance sheet. Well, there is also an argument to be made that the QE that we've seen over the past couple of years is stylistically and quantitatively different than the ones we've seen prior. And so the exit is going to be different, too. So we are going to dig into all of these um, very big and technical questions. And I'm happy to say we really do have the perfect person to discuss this. We're going to be speaking with someone who's been on the podcast before, Joe, but I think you were actually away for that episode. Thrilled to have him back. Yeah. So I'm thrilled to have him back. We're going to be speaking with Joseph Wang. He used to work at the New York Fed on the open markets desk, conducting repo operations, basically being deep in the weeds of money markets. And now he runs a blog called Fed Guy, which is really a must read if you're interested in monetary policy and in all of these big questions about how it actually works. So, Joseph, thank you so much for coming back on Odd Lots. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Joe. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So maybe just to begin with, could you give us the broad outline of how quantitative tightening or the QE that we've seen over the past couple of years, you know, as I alluded to, it's different to the QE that we've seen in the past. So I guess the question is, how different is it this time? Like what makes this particular exit different to previous periods of quantitative tightening that we've seen? Sure. So I think this time QT is different first in the level and I think there's changes in the financial, in the structure of the financial system that make it a bit more difficult. So this time around, Kiwi looks like it's going to ramp up to about $95 billion a month. Now, in contrast, the last time around when we did this, the maximum that we ever did was $50 billion a month. So in terms of pace, it's a much, much more aggressive pace. We're doing $95 billion a month. In kind of contrast, last time, the maximum we did was $50 billion a month. So the way that this works through the system, I think, broadly speaking, I think of QT as having two mechanisms. Uh, One is that it increases the supply of treasuries into the market. That's one. And that's kind of how the Fed thinks of it. It, uh, By increasing or increasing the supply of treasuries, you are pushing the term premium higher. So it puts upward pressure on interest rates. And the second mechanism has to do with draining liquidity out of the system. So... Uh, these two mechanisms are related, but also operate in separate ways. And they also have a lot of moving parts into how they actually can play out. And these moving parts aren't completely within the Fed's control. So because of this, QT can play out in a range of outcomes. Uh, you can have very benign QT, where it really is just washing paint dry, as Charlie Ellen mentioned before, or you can have QT that's more aggressive and very disruptive. Now, based on what I see, in the current configuration of the financial system, since there's so many moving parts. It seems what's happening right now is compared to last time, QT this time is going to be a lot more disruptive. Hmm. I guess I can talk about why from the- Yeah, from, yeah, why? So just I'll, I'll go by the first mechanism, the increase in treasury supply, and then I'll talk about why draining liquidity this time will also be more disruptive. So when QT increases the supply of treasuries into the private sector, the Fed doesn't actually get to decide what tenors that reach the market. That's a decision by the U.S. Treasury. Uh, tech, hmm. Overall, what happens is that um, when the Fed is doing QT, it's, it's receiving repayments for the treasuries that it, owes, that, that it owns. So the U.S. Treasury issues new debt and takes that money and repays the Fed. That's what happens. So it's the U.S. Treasury that gets to decide what are the new, what are the tenors of the new treasuries that the market absorbs. Now, 
you can do this in a way that's very market neutral. So let's say the US Treasury issues a lot of short dated debt treasury bills. Now, the market can absorb these treasury bills very easily. Uh, if you think back to the first quarter of 2020, the treasury issued $2 trillion in bills and the market just lapped that up easily. So in a sense, it's because bills are so cash-like, it's they don't really have any interest rate impact. But what the US Treasury is doing this time around, it's actually cutting bill issuance. So uh, because it received a lot of tax payments in April above its expectations. So all the QT increase in supply over the next uh, few months is, is going to be in coupons. And coupons are more difficult for the market to absorb. So it's probably going to place more uh, upward pressure on interest rates. There, there are also a lot more mechanics behind this that, that make it this time around more disruptive. So for example, we're having a big change in who the marginal buyers are in this market. Well, actually, I'll, I'll sit back a bit and say, so the increase in supply this time around is much higher than it was last time around. I, I think it's useful to think about treasury rates in, in terms of supply and demand. So in terms of supply, this time around, the amount taking into account of QT, the estimates for the increase in supply to the private sector is going to be about $1.5 trillion a year. Uh, so for the next three years, you know, just for context, pre-COVID, uh, the amount of supply that was going into the market was about $500 billion a year. Mm. And so mm. the pace of the supply is just so, so much higher than, than it was uh, the, the last time we did this. And that is happening in the context of, from the I'll say, demand side, from the buyer side, where the marginal buyer is changing and the market structure doesn't seem very strong. The marginal buyer for treasuries um, before COVID was actually the hedge fund, the hedge funds. So, what the hedge funds were doing, they were buying, let's say, hundreds of billions of dollars in treasuries, uh, several hundred billions in treasuries, uh, but they were buying it as part of a basis trade. So, they actually didn't really care uh, about things right. like growth and inflation. It was really about the spread between the cash treasuries and the futures. So, they were the marginal buyers. Post COVID, it was all about the Fed and the commercial banks. The commercial banks, because of regulation, uh, they have to own a lot of uh, liquid assets, and they were buying tremendously. So those players are not in the market anymore, and they were also players who are much more agnostic to things like uh, where the interest rates were, because they have to buy them as part of a pairs trade or for regulation. Those people are out, and you're having to a situation where we're looking for the new marginal buyer and. That new marginal buyer is probably going to be more sensitive to things like inflation rates, and you know, as as we see in what's happening in uh, inflation, it, it's not clear what that is, nor what the Fed's policy rate will be going forward. So there's going to be some volatility there. Hmm. Oh, and one more thing, and you can see Chair Powell mention this again: Treasury market liquidity is, is not very good. So when we have this tremendous increase in supply, changing demand emits very low treasury market liquidity. So uh, just, just for some context, so every day in the treasury market, we do about $600 billion in cash, cash um, transactions. And we have about a $23 trillion treasury market for the private sector. So if you rewind the clock 20 years ago, uh, we had about $7 trillion in net marketable treasuries. Daily volumes were about $400 billion. So today, the total treasuries 
volumes have more than tripled to 23 trillion, but the liquidity, daily liquidity, is only a little bit higher from 400 billion to 600 billion. So you can have, in a sense, you can think about, let's say, the stadium getting a lot bigger, but the doors are not really increasing. And that's a big reason why we see these huge moves in treasury yields recently. I think a few weeks ago, we saw the 10 year just jump 25 basis points. We saw the treasury market break in uh, March 2020, and we've had flash crashes in the past. So it's kind of, there's a storm brewing from my perspective where you have enormous issuance, you have a weak market structure, and you also have a demand side for treasuries that, that's becoming a little uncertain. So uh, that's just with respect so, to the treasury, please. No, so I want to explore like the liquidity side a little bit more. And one of the things that we talked about in a recent episode, you know, like treasuries and reserves are not that different from a sort of like economic perspective, right? So, okay, you talk about this like huge increase into the market of these treasuries that the Fed will be getting rid of, reducing. But on the other hand, it's also diminishing uh, the reserves, the liability side of the balance sheet. And so on some level, there's an evenness to it. And economically, they're not radically different. They are somewhat different. Explain further the effect on liquidity from swapping two assets that are not that different? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think there's a couple things to this. Uh, one is that reserves can only be held by commercial banks. Mm-hmm. So a current, so reserves are basically deposits at the Fed. And only commercial banks, broadly speaking, can have deposits at the, at the Fed. So from a commercial bank's standpoint, Joe, you're you're right. It, it's very equivalent. I mean, there's more interest rate risk in a treasury, for example. Okay. Um, but for a commercial bank's standpoint, I can have reserves in my liquidity portfolio, or I can have treasuries. And what they've been doing for the past couple of years is they're making that choice to say that I want to have treasuries rather than reserves, since treasuries are yielding much more than interest on reserves. But that's not the decision faced by people who are not banks. So for example, you and me, we have deposits at uh, a commercial bank. We don't, we're not eligible to hold reserves at the Fed. So when the Fed is doing QT, from our perspective, the deposits in the system are declining. So when the Fed does QT, it reduces reserve assets at commercial bank, which are often backed by deposit liabilities. So it's this two-tiered monetary system we have where non-banks have deposits at banks and banks hold deposits at the Fed. So from our perspective, we're losing bank deposits, which are, you know, carry credit risk and don't earn IOR. So the the substitution is is not Mm. perfect. But I think more broadly, the point though, is it seems like right now what's happening is that treasuries are becoming less cash-like. You can see this in the lack of flight to safety in market volatility. Uh, Bonds are selling off and stocks are selling off. So Mm. when we have high inflation and we have a lot of rate volatility, it seems like the market is not rushing to treasuries as safety. They're rushing to just cash. And so that that makes it, I think, this asset swap that, that you talk about, which is broadly what QE is, not as perfect substitutes for each other. Mm-hmm. 
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I just want to touch on on one consequence of the dynamic you just described before we go more into QT and the mechanics there. But we've spoken about this before, I, I think last year, but the implication that banks aren't necessarily buying treasuries because they think that, you know, interest rates are going to go up or down, but they're buying them because they have to buy treasuries to satisfy liquidity coverage ratios and regulatory requirements and things like that. And treasuries are sort of the best option of the assets that are available to do that. So what does that actually mean when it comes to treasury yields? Like when we look at a treasury yield now, how much information is that actually giving us about investors' expectations for the future direction of the economy and things like that? When I look at treasury yields, I don't actually think there's a lot of information content. And I don't think so because as you, as you know, the Treasury, uh, Tracy, there's a lot of people who buy treasuries for, for different reasons. So you do have investors who, let's say, look at growth and inflation and look at yields and, and make a judgment. But treasuries are very special in the financial system in that they are considered a high quality asset, a credit risk free asset. And under a range of regulations, people have to buy them just because the regulations tell them to. And banks, for example, they have to hold high-quality liquid assets, as you mentioned, under things like the liquidity coverage ratio. What qualifies as high-quality liquid assets, a very, very narrow range of assets, treasuries being one of them. And so they have to buy some of that. But it's not just them. Um, if you look at, let's say, uh, government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they also have similar regulations where they have to buy high-quality liquid assets. Or if you look abroad, if you are a foreign reserve manager, if you're managing the foreign reserves of, let's say, uh, uh, Japan or China or some other country, you can't really buy uh, just equities or anything like that. You usually, other than this Swiss National Bank, usually you're very, very conservative. And so you can only buy things like treasuries. So there's a there's a lot of demand for treasuries that, that's just not that mm. uh, driven by fundamentals. And of course, you can have hedge funds who are just buying it as part of a basis trade where they care about the spread between uh, the treasuries and something else rather than the absolute level of the treasuries as measured by, uh, let's say, economic fundamentals. So it's it's really hard to, to look at, from my perspective, to look at price and infer economic conditions. So thinking about, you know, in terms of like the mechanics or the implications of quantitative tightening, why don't we start off with a sort of kind of basic question, but it's like, why does the Fed 
feel an impulse to reduce the size of its balance sheet because it has the rate channel. It can hike rates. It has. It's been hiking fairly aggressively, 70, uh, you know, 75 at the last meeting. Where does the urgency or just even the impulse come from to decrease its holdings? I think from the Fed's perspective, it's it's a lot like you and Tracy suggested earlier in the show. The Fed doesn't really understand what exactly <laughs> happens. <laughs> and yeah. so they, they want to be with something that they under, they think they understand well, right. like the overnight rate. So yes. it, it seems from what I hear, they, they want to get out of this balance sheet stuff and go to something that they feel like they're more comfortable with, uh, which is raising the overnight rate. And, you know, as you, suggest, as you mentioned, you have disagreements within the Fed as to what exactly QE does. Uh, you have people who would feel like, oh, you know, QE doesn't really do anything, just swapping one asset for another. And yet you have people in the market who, who look at QE and just, you know, max long because QE makes the market go higher. So <laughs> I think there's a, there's just not very clear what it actually does, and they don't want to be doing things that they don't really understand. What do you think it does? Can you sort of describe for us what draining liquidity would look like in the current period versus draining liquidity from, say, 2018 or 2019? Because I think that might help us sort of understand the differences here and the difference in the mechanism. Sure. So when the Fed drains liquidity out of the financial system, it doesn't actually have control where the liquidity comes out of. It can come out of the banking system, which would drain well, reserves and deposits, or it can come out of the RRP, which would just decrease the RRP size. Now, the RRP, as you see right now, it's very large. It's uh, 2.2 trillion. The, the RRP, you can think of as just the true excess liquidity in the financial system. There's all this money that people have nowhere else to invest in, and so they just leave it on deposit at the Fed at the, and receive the RRP rate. So when you do QT, if money is coming out of the RRP, you're, it's going to be a very benign because you're taking money out that really nobody wants. Or you could take it out of the banking system, which conceivably someone somewhere is reliant upon that, that, that liquidity. The Fed beforehand doesn't actually know what will happen. If you listen to Fed presidents talk over the past few months, they just look at the RRP and they, they think that there's a lot of excess liquidity in the system. Mm -hmm. And so they can, they can, we can just do aggressive QT, no problem. But if you notice what's happening right now is that the RRP is not declining. <laughs> it will probably go much higher in my view. Right. So I have to say we're recording this right before quarter end. So right before the end of June. And there is a very high chance that it could shoot up. Uh, I think in May it went above something like $2 trillion, which was a record at the time. But we could get another record before this episode actually publishes. Yeah. It's, it's, when I used to run the RFP, we were very surprised for like $500 billion. Now it, that's, that's too low. Um, what happens? So the reason is that when you have all this liquidity, um, how it gets drained ultimately depends on who buys the newly issued treasuries and how they finance it. If the treasuries are purchased by people who are levered investors, then it drains the RRP. For example, if you are a hedge fund and you buy the newly issued R uh, treasuries with a uh, repo loan, then the cash from that repo loan ultimately comes from uh, the RRP. Uh, a money market fund will withdraw money from the RRP and lend it in repo to the hedge fund investor. Money fund investors can only lend, uh, can only make specific investments, very narrow. One of them is repo. So that's basically the only, oh, that and increased bill issuance. But broadly speaking, uh, that would be how you get the RRP lower. 
On the other hand, if the people who buy the newly issued treasuries are, let's say, cash investors who are buying it with deposits they held on commercial banks, then what you will see is that liquidity will be drained out of the banking system. So that means that what's being drained is not necessarily liquidity that's uh, held in the RP that no one wants, that's excess, but liquidity in the banking system that maybe someone somewhere is relying on. Now, beforehand, it's hard to see where the, where the liquidity will be drained, but the way that I look at this is I just look at what's actually been happening the past few months. So the past few months, when the Treasury has been issuing coupon debt, the people who have been buying it have been people who are holding money at a commercial bank. So you can see that with the increases over the past few months, the amount of reserves in the commercial banking system is declining, but the amount of in the RP is not declining. So just how the financial system is currently configured, there doesn't seem like there's going to be any increased demand for leveraged treasury investing. So going forward, uh, what you can actually see is that the draining from QT comes out of the commercial banking system, whereas the RP continues to mm. increase. This, in a sense, is kind of like a double tightening effect because when the RP goes higher, it's also draining liquidity out of the banking system. So this is why it seems on this side of the equation, from my perspective, draining liquidity can also be disruptive. You're not draining liquidity out of the RP, which would be painless for the financial system. You're draining it at, out of the banking system, and the RP is also sucking liquidity out of the banking system. Let me ask you another kind of slightly bigger picture question, but you, you talked about the balance sheet remains a tool that the Fed is, you know, it's hard to quantify its effects. Perhaps it's a little bit uncomfortable using it and so forth. And it seems to me that, you know, thinking about the difference between post-great financial crisis and post-COVID, that QE was sort of used differently. And so post-great uh, financial crisis, the Fed had hit the uh, zero lower bound and felt it needed to ease further. And so it bought assets. Whereas my sense of sort of March 2020 was that there was a big element specifically of this liquidity effect and of this, uh, you know, wanting to sort of credit easing and backstop credit markets specifically via asset purchases. I guess, you know, the question I've wondered is, did they sort of backdoor themselves into using a tool that it actually never really wanted that because it had this unusual situation, they didn't really want to have to go back to QE, but they sort of were forced to and it stuck around longer because they had this sort of different need when COVID hit. I think you're, you're right that they, they used the QE differently in, in COVID. So post GFC, it was largely used as a tool to lower longer dated interest rates. Yeah. So the Fed hit the zero bound. It wanted to continue to ease by putting downward pressure on longer dated interest rates. Right. So in order to do that, it bought a lot of treasuries. Now, fast forward to March 2020, it was a little bit different because the treasury market broke. Yeah. So what that meant was that people who wanted to sell their treasuries for cash could not do that. So on a global scale, treasuries are kind of where people keep their dollars. It's kind of like a, mm -hmm. a huge bank, so to speak. So for example, if you and I, we go to the bank and we want to get our cash out because we need cash, uh, we expect to be able to get that. But if the bank says, sorry, I don't have any cash, then you know 
we panic. There's a there's a run on that bank, and that's what happened in March 2020 to the treasury market. Everyone wanted to sell their treasuries for cash. Realized that they could not actually sell their treasury for cash. In the sense, there was a run on the market, and they started selling everything else that they could to get cash. The Fed saw that, and they wanted to help that by basically backstopping the treasury market, becoming mm-hmm. a liquidity private of last resort. And they purchased, let's say, about a trillion dollars of treasuries in one month. That's how QE came back in 2020, but it right. stayed yeah. uh, far, far, far beyond uh, the, the liquidity event. And at that stage, I think it morphed back into yeah. easing financial conditions, as you suggested, which I take to mean the original QE motivation of putting downward pressure on interest rates. So that's how I think about that. I, I agree. It probably was not super necessary after after for, for the length of time that yeah. they kept it. You know, you mentioned the treasury market blow up in 2020. And again, this is something that we've been talking about quite a lot recently on other episodes. We also had the repo blow up from 2019. And I think the response to that was the creation of the standing repo facility, the SRF, which basically allowed banks to exchange treasuries for dollars. And so I'm wondering... Does the existence of something like that, does it make it less possible that we're going to get some sort of major blow up or are there limits to what the SRF can do in the current environment? So last time around, QT basically contributed to the blow up of, of the repo market, as you noted. So I don't I don't think that's going to happen this time around. But so, I mean, we, we never have the same thing blow up usually. I think stress <laughs> will be in somewhere else. And I think to, to understand why I think the stress will be somewhere else, it's helpful to revisit what actually happened. Why did QT cause the repo market to blow up in 2019? For some context, in 2019, um, heading into, let's say, uh, let's say, September of 2019, when the repo market blew up, there was tremendous demand for repo financing. The amount of repo demand for repo financing increased by a few hundred billion in the in the months leading up to September 2019. And those were all the hedge funds uh, doing the doing their basis trades. And that pushed repo rates uh, steadily higher and ultimately above interest on reserves. So the banks saw the saw that repo rates were above interest on reserves. And they note that lending in treasury-backed repo from a regulatory standpoint is equivalent to holding reserves at the Fed. So they figured that they can earn some extra return by shifting the composition of their liquidity portfolio to fewer reserves and more repo. And so heading into September 2019, the banks became the marginal lender in the repo market to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. So QT was playing in the background. And what QT was doing, it was withdrawing the amount of uh, excess cash the banks sell their reserves. So as we had from a demand side, continued demand for repo financing, and on the supply side, banks being the marginal lenders in the market, their extra cash bail declining because of QT. Eventually, the market hit an air pocket where uh, repo rates spiked higher uncontrollably. Uh, another way to think about this is that the markets that benefited from QE cash were hurt by QT, and the major beneficiary in QE cash last time around was repo. We don't have that problem at all this time because repo rates are much lower than IOR. Banks are not lending in, in repo. What they have been lending in, as I mentioned earlier, is in Treasury's agency NPS uh, to the tune of $1.5 trillion the past couple of years. So we have this dynamic. We have a 
similar dynamic playing out, but just not in the repo market. This time around, tremendous demand, continued demand for financing by the US Treasury, met by the marginal lender in the market, the commercial banks, having less cash to lend. So if there is another blow up because of QT, it's very likely to be, in my view, in the treasury market since the same genetic dynamic is, mm. is playing out. And what that could eventually mean is some kind of, let's say, liquidity backstop for the treasury market rather than uh, for the repo, which I think is probably very logical given what the Fed is already doing. Uh, if you recall, as you noted, Tracy, when the repo market blew up, Fed stepped in with an emergency liquidity facility for repo. When the FX mm-hmm. swap lines blow up, the Fed has their FX swap lines. When the commercial paper market blows up, they have their, you know, they have their tools for that. In the past, when the treasury market blew up, it's pro- they just did QE, which is a very blunt instrument. A more calibrated instrument would probably be some kind of emergency backstop willing to buy treasuries at a, you know, a set interest rate set above the market as a liquidity backstop. There is a standing repo facility, right? Exactly. That provides emergency liquidity. If you have treasuries, yeah. you can repo that for cash. So it provides emergency cash. Uh, it doesn't have a, doesn't put a ceiling on rates in case the treasury market blows up because of selling. In theory, why do, is that not sufficient to avoid a blow up? If any holder, if a holder of treasuries can know that there is this this window or this desk out there that will swap at any time treasuries for cash. Why doesn't that short circuit the sort of run dynamics in the first place? Exactly. So that has to do with uh, balance sheet constraints. And I'll explain that a little okay. bit more. So when the people who have access to the Fed's repo facility are the primary dealers. Mm. So if you want to have liquidity flow from the standing repo facility to the market, it has to go through the primary dealers. And how that would play out is the primary dealer would borrow from the Fed, let's say $100 from the Fed, and then let's say on the asset side, lend out that $100. So it expands the balance sheet of a primary dealer. Primary dealers are basically like the pipes through which money flows from uh, the Fed or money market fund cash investors into the broader market. Pre-GFC, there was not a lot of limit to how wide these pipes could be. Post-GFC, because of all the number of regulations, uh, the pipes actually have kind of a fixed size. So uh, for example, if there's a tr- tremendous need for liquidity, a primary dealer cannot uh, borrow like $100 billion from the Fed and just lend it out to the market because they would hit these regulatory constraints. From a high level, pre-GFC, the dealers were doing about $3 trillion in repo. Now that's you know pre-GFC, that's in 2007. Today, they're doing about $1.5 trillion. So you know, everything in the market has gone much bigger, but yet the repo, the amount of repo primary dealers do has gone smaller by half. Mm. And that's that, those are the pipes of the financial system becoming more constrained. And also why we had these blowups in March 2020. Dealers, even though at the time they also had access to this uh, repo facility the Fed had, their balance sheets, the pipes were simply not wide enough to, to accommodate all that. So um, they could. Yeah. there are regulatory things they can do to tweak that. And I think there's work being done on that side. Um, but at the moment, it's not complete yet.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what would cause the Fed to pause QT? Like, what would be the catalyst for it to step back and go, oh, wait a second, we're doing this at too rapid a pace or we're doing too much too soon and basically reconsider? So I think... The thinking is that eventually the Fed will become, will hike or do QT, and eventually something will blow up and they'll have to, to reverse. I actually think that's, that's totally accurate in what happened in the past. But I think what's happening now is that the Fed actually has enough tools so that they, they don't have to stop. So uh, if you think about, broadly speaking, the Fed has basically become a, a one-mandate bank for the moment. Um, the Powell is telling you that it's his con- commitment to price stability is unconditional. He's telling you that uh, full employment is conditional on price stability. So the only thing that happens that matters for him right now is is uh, inflation. And so he's going to be very aggressive in his monetary tightening. And that means, of course, not stopping QT and not stopping rate hikes. He can do that now because the Fed has rolled out so many new facilities such that wide sectors of the economy can be supported even if something breaks. The Fed, during March 2020, pioneered facilities to make them lender of last resort for a wide range of markets and for a wide range of sectors. For example, they're backstopping the municipal bond market through their municipal liquidity facility last time around and the corporate bond market through the corporate credit facility. And conceivably, they could also have new treasury facilities as well. So I think eventually something will break because it always breaks, but it doesn't mean that they'll stop. It just means that they Hmm. could use their facilities to further extend their tightening. These facilities, in my view, greatly extend the possibility of, of how restrictive monetary policy can be simply because they remove liquidity risk. Wait, sorry. Can you just explain that a little further? You're saying these new facilities... Okay, sorry. The facilities that were pioneered yeah, yeah. back in March so 2020. These, which... these new facilities that were pioneered in March 2020, the explicit backstopping of the credit markets, the Muni facility, which was obviously extraordinary and sort of, uh, you know, this, this brand new thing. Explain, how do you see them potentially being used? Because I feel like these facilities have largely been forgotten about. No one ever talks about either one of those these days. Exactly, exactly. So they've all forgotten and they're not commissioned right now. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that if QT yeah. or if Fed rate hikes actually break something in the market, the Fed does not have to stop. It does not have to stop because it can continue to keep the financial so, markets hum- so, humming along. So it can repair, it can continue to tighten in pursuit of its inflation goal while sort of more strategically repairing potential breaks in the financial markets. 
Exactly, Joe. Okay, interesting. Because, again, the Fed has become lender of last resort yeah. to such a wide, wide range of market participants from the corporations, from the to the municipals, and indirectly to small businesses uh, through the banking system, through their uh, mainstream lending facility. So it's basically such so significantly expanded their footprint mm. that there's less reliance on the transmission of monetary policy through the market. And you can kind of... Uh, well, it's not ideal, but you can kind of indirectly reach it through these programs such that even if something breaks, it doesn't actually mean they have to back down lower rates and uh, yeah. continue QE, especially if inflation is too high. What's your bet on what could break if you had to if you had to wager something right now? Like, what would it be? Where's the biggest area of weakness? I, I still believe the treasury market is the highest risk. Hmm. That's first because of as I mentioned, the repo breakup dynamics that we saw in the prior QP are playing out in the treasury market. We have tremendous supply coming up a few years. The demand, it doesn't seem like it's there because the marginal investor is disappearing. And we have very weak, low liquidity, weak market structure. And just watching the treasury market over the past few weeks seems like it's becoming more volatile. Uh, so I think that's probably mm. the place that, that is most likely to break this time around. So one of the uh, thing you know, as you were talking about in the beginning, it can be sort of hard to – well, it can be hard to predict what's going to break. It can also be hard to predict where the liquidity is going to get drained out of the system first, like all of these things. It doesn't seem like a, it's a hard science anticipating it. Is this sort of fundamentally why the Fed is so uncomfortable quantifying the tightening effect of uh, balance sheet policy because, you know, it's sort of easy to see like the transmission mechanism of a rate increase. It's like you hike rates and rates go up and then you see it in mortgages and car loans and that tightens the housing market. It's somewhat straightforward, I think. Whereas if there's so much uncertainty about where is the liquidity going to come from or uh, be pulled from, it seems that makes it inherently a much tougher tool to quantify and calibrate. I agree completely with that. And I, I don't actually know if the Fed under, understands this. Uh, if you hear, I think there's work from the Fed that's also been mentioned from by Governor Waller that, you know, let's say $2 trillion of QE is, a QT is equal to like 50 basis points. Yeah. I suspect that's probably not true and it will, will be something that they wish they didn't say. Because the, the thing is, there's so many moving parts to this. There's so many ways this can go. It's not something that can fit it in an equation. Now, if you want to approach the world as if it were a giant equation, you need to have relationships that are consistent and don't change. And this is very much true in physics. If I drop a rock here, uh, you know, 9.8 meters per second square, it goes down. Same if I dropped it in London or if I dropped it 100 years ago. That works well hmm. for things that don't change. But if you're looking at the financial markets, the relationships are always changing. There are different regimes and there are different actors and different regulatory changes. So you just really can't know what will happen. Any estimate, I think, is, is just not very useful. And it's, so with, in that sense, it's kind of good that they get out of this. Yeah. This is a related question, but what's the future of the Fed and its relationship with financial markets in the sense that, you know, as you've been describing now for the past, at least the past 10 years, you know, more than a decade since 2008, whenever something goes wrong, the Fed comes up with some sort of new program to enable it to keep pursuing its policy goals or keep doing what it was doing. Is that 
just how it's going to be for the foreseeable future. You know, something goes wrong. The Fed comes up with a new program. It gets added. Eventually it becomes the new normal. Eventually something else goes wrong and there's a new program and so on and so forth. Or is there going to be a larger shift or break in this pattern at some point? I think going forward, I think the inevitable outcome is probably a reversal of the Fed Treasury Accord simply because the Fed itself is becoming so much more involved in the markets. It's going to need to have more accountability. It's it's going it's essentially becoming lender of last resort to, to everyone in the system, but also because of changes in the structure of, of the economy such that the Fed probably can't carry out its task the same way that it was able to, say, at its inception. And this has to do with how the public sector is just a bigger part of the economy. For example, mm-hmm. if you think back 100 years ago, the government was a very small part of the economy. And the Fed, with its mandate of controlling uh, inflation, it can simply adjust interest rates and private actors respond to that. It works much better. If you are a private sector actor, you care about the price of money. And if interest rates are higher, you moderate your economic activity. And if interest rates are lower, uh, you, you know, maybe you spend more. Um, but the structure of the economy has changed so much over the past 100 years, such that there's a greater part of the economy that's basically the public sector. And the public sector doesn't really care about interest rates. So when the Fed hikes, when the Fed cuts, that doesn't really affect their economic activity. Their economic activity has to be affected through the legislative process. So as this trend continues, as one, a greater part of the economy becomes insensitive to Hmm. the, uh, the Fed's interest rates, thus making the Fed less effective in controlling rates. And two, as the Fed becomes uh, much more involved as lender of last resort to a wide range of the market, essentially becoming more in the allocation of credit business, which I think is probably something that more properly belongs to, if not the private sector, at least someone that has public mandate. So it seems we're heading towards a world, it will make more sense or more coordination between Fed and Treasury to achieve these goals, simply because the Fed is doing more stuff that is Uh, fiscal policy-like, and also it has less ability to influence economic outcomes. All right, Joseph, it was so good having you back on Odd Lots. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love Odd Lots, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Tracy, and thanks, Joe. Thank you. It was great, uh, great chatting with you. So, Joe, I thought that was incredibly interesting and really good to get into the weeds of some of this. And also, I mean, one thing that is becoming clear from recent episodes is that lots of people seem to be saying that liquidity in the Treasury market has deteriorated for various reasons and that there are some vulnerabilities there. But Joseph's mention of the idea of Treasuries becoming less like cash um, or less cash-like in the way they are traded and in their position in the financial system that would actually be a sea change for markets, I think. It's weird because, I mean, clearly with the existence of the standing repo facility, the Fed's goal is to make it more explicitly cash-like. I mean, that's the idea, right? They're similar. Mm-hmm. They've always been somewhat money-like and similar to cash. And 
uh, okay, and now they have this formal standing repo facility so that uh, at least the primary dealers can swap them into cash at any time, even when it's not an emergency. So the fact that like liquidity is still deteriorating, the fact that, uh, you know, we have had all these issues, uh, you know, raises it to his point. There's clearly still a lot of uh, unfinished business. Yeah. The other thing that kind of struck me from that conversation was his description of how when the RRP I don't think we ever actually said what the RRP stands for, but it's the reverse repurchase facility. But when the RRP goes up, it doesn't necessarily mean that liquidity in the overall system is going up, which I think there are still a lot of people out there that look at the RRP at $2 trillion or whatever, and they go like, oh, liquidity is sloshing around the system. Buy everything. I'm thinking <laughs> I'm thinking in particular of a certain subreddit where the RRP is a really big talking point. But Joseph's point that actually the RRP going up means liquidity might not be going out of the banking system. And so, you know, financial conditions are tightening. That's worth remembering. And just to his broader point, which he hit yeah. a few different ways, like the the sort of relationship between quantitative tightening and where liquidity can come out of the market at any given time and to some degree, you know, the unpredictability of it, the fact yeah. that it's different under different regimes. I think that may be like the clearest explanation of like why mm -hmm. the Fed and nobody else really even like talks about the tightening effects of QT in part because like it's just not nearly as straightforward or predictable. So the idea of like putting a number on it or saying like, OK, QT is like worth this many rate cuts or, or sorry, rate hikes or whatever, like it seems way harder to judge. Yeah. No, the, I, that's why I they actually, should just keep the balance sheet big and forget about it. It seems like it costs them. That's my that's my solution. If I were there, I was like, let's just yeah. It's just too much of a headache. Yeah, to figure keep it, it all out. You know, so what? It's a few trillion, whatever. Just keep it there. That would be that. Would, well, I, I mean, if I were on the FOMC, that would be my vote. You know what? Uh, everyone campaign for Joe for Fed chair. Uh, you know, a simplified Fed, simplified open market operations. That's Joe's uh, That's Joe's campaign platform. Balance sheet only goes in one direction when I'm on the Fed. It only gets bigger. <laughs> we never do the opposite. You know what? I think that might actually be a very successful talking point. Okay, let's leave it there before we uh, say anything else. Sounds good. Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Joseph Wang, on Twitter. He's at FedGuy12. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Armin. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 